welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. We are living in a strange time, and I thought I would make a couple of, of observations about what's happening in our current context. Uh, we are seeing a rise in an increase of intensity and pressure that's created in our socio-political and religious climate. Uh, Men and women in America have untethered themselves, both on the right and the left, from traditional Christianity or any form of religion. And they have redrawn their allegiances more broadly, grounding their identities in political ideologies and cultural narratives rather than Jesus. Media has become a form of entertainment that continues to polarize every single issue as a conservative or left agenda. And social media is not just simply a tool to share your life with your loved ones. It's now a tool to spread um, various ideologies and information and misinformation in this world of chaos. We live in a time where one must use the right language at all times and one must speak out in every way. And, um, and there are some things that we need to speak out against, absolutely. But people are exhausted and people are clearly angry. People are living in a frenzy with a low-grade anxiety that is present always. And I think about what's happening in the world at this moment. And I think about that poem by T.S. Eliot who said, they constantly tried to escape from the darkness outside and within by dreaming of systems so perfect that no one will need to be good. They, by, uh, by dreaming of systems so perfect that no one will need to be perfect. One thing I find fascinating is that we live in a moment Um, of increasing hostility towards biblical values, but not necessarily towards Christianity. You see, in the U.S., there is a public expression of faith today that lacks private devotion, a public expression of faith that lacks private devotion. It's called cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity, this is what we've adopted to be more sensible, more comfortable, more... um, a form of Christianity that enables us to fit in with our society. In our society demands that we as Christians move our faith from the public sphere into the private sector. This form of Christianity is more of a social club or a recreational hobby. Cultural Christianity professes to be Christian as an idea of broad moral alignment, but it lacks private commitment to the actual values and practices of Jesus. And it is cultural Christianity that is destroying the witness of the church in the world today. It is full of hypocrisy. And it proclaims to follow the way of Jesus, but it is made, it has made Jesus in its own image. So if we are to be Christian, little Christs, we are going to, we are going to need to follow the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus will cost every disciple everything, not something. It will cost you everything. And it will require a genuine faith that that lives its 
it lives out a, a, a genuine faith that, that finds its place in everyday ordinary life, not just on Sundays, not just when you feel like it. And this kind of Christianity will experience a new kind of pressure from the world that demands conformity. And the question that we will have to face as followers of Jesus, I believe in our lifetime, is will you remain faithful under pressure? Will you remain faithful when the world is trying to conform you to its image? Or will you give in? And perhaps there's no better time now, there's no better time than now to teach on the book of Revelation, one of the most misunderstood books in the entire scriptures. This is a letter, a pastoral letter to the first, uh, to, to seven churches in the first century around Asia Minor. And they were facing all sorts of obstacles, obstacles of giving in to political pressure, religious pressure, uh, comforts and security. Um, They were living within a large empire that was dominating the world around them, forcing them to, to participate in cult practices that were connected to the economic and commerce of its day. So, we, we read this text, this book, to form our worldview, to allow us to engage in the world around us in new ways. And that's what I hope we can do. Let me pray. Father, I pray as we open up the scriptures today that we would be full of faith, that you would give us a new way of seeing the world, that you would give us vision and insight into how to engage as faithful followers of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we would be committed to you, Jesus, and your way wherever we are. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, the resurrected King, amen. Let me just begin, if you're just catching up, with a quick review. So the letter is written by the Apostle John, um, who is now in his mid-80s. He's in in a prison island or on a prison island called Patmos, um, which is about 40 miles off of the coast of modern-day Turkey. John is there because of his allegiance to Jesus as Lord. He could not abide by the emperor Domitian's edict that all of the Roman subjects had to worship the emperor. While while, um, John was on Patmos, he was given a vision of Jesus. And this fresh revelation of Jesus himself um, gives him perspective. And he is tasked with um, the, the initiative to write a letter to the seven churches in Asia Minor. The first letter we read last week, which was uh, a, f- a few verses to the church in Ephesus. And what we see now in these letters to the churches is this formula that would have been seen as a royal edict or a prophetic oracle that um, Jesus is now speaking to the church, being among the churches, not from far away, but right in the midst of the church. He writes to them and he says, I know what you are doing. He, he knows the good things that are going on in the church. I know that you have been faithful. I know that uh, you couldn't tolerate wicked. I know that you have persevered and have suffered with hard labor. And then he goes on in Ephesus and he says, but I, have, I hold this against you. And it's in Ephesus that we see that they have been successful in so many ways. But the Ephesian church has uh, forsaken the first love they had with Jesus. They had forgotten their first love. And so we move from letter to letter with specific directions from Jesus himself to those specific churches. So we pick up in chapter two and we're gonna look at the church in Smyrna. Now, before I read this, I thought I would give you context to help understand 
um, how this would have been received in the first century. In the first century, the church in Smyrna would have read this and they would have um, caught all the nuances that were specific to their city. The church in Smyrna uh, was one of the most lovely or the loveliest churches of the seven. They were the wealthiest of the seven. It was a very wealthy city, very significant city. It was the birthplaces of great writers that we've read about throughout history, including Homer, and later the Bishop Polycarp, uh, a famous Christian martyr who was born in Smyrna. Smyrna exists today, um, and it's in modern-day Turkey. It's the city of Izmir. And so it it is a significant city. Back in the first century, it was called the crown of Asia. It was the flower of Asia. Smyrna rivaled Ephesus. It was known in quotations as the first city of Asia. On their, their coin stamped in their city read first city of Asia in size and beauty. First city of Asia in size and beauty. Smyrna's case was... um, In Smyrna, it was known for fierce loyalty to Rome in all things. Fierce loyalty to all things Roman. The city lived with this stamp of approval, Rome first in all things. It was loyal in history to the Rome uh, and the goddess of Rome and her superpower. And it built a, a, a temple to the goddess of Rome, Dea Roma, um, in 195 BC, it built a temple. It was the first city to do that in all of the Roman Empire. Um, In 23 AD, they built another uh, statue for Caesar. They built a temple to Caesar Augustus. And in 25 AD, they they competed in the games um, that was going on uh, for the Roman Empire. So the city won over all sorts of uh, 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 success that was given and stamped uh, by the approval of the Roman Senate and the emperors throughout history. And so what we know is that the city itself was sold out to whatever it meant to be Rome. Whatever made Rome great is what Smyrna was all about. It was a city that wanted to ensure Rome's greatness. And Smyrna had gone through all sorts of issues in the first, uh, before this letter was written. It was a city that was known for being dead and coming back to life. In 580 BC, it was destroyed, but in 290 BC, it was rebuilt, and the city was known for its resurrection or coming from death to life. All of this context, its wealth, its significance, its loyalty to Rome, its, uh, it's it being the first um, priority city in all of the Roman Empire, all of that would have been known in the first century by other cities, but also especially those who were living in Smyrna. Are you with me? I know that's a lot of history. Let's jump in. It says this in Roman, uh, in Revelation chapter two, verse eight. It says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is first and the last, who died and came to life again. Are you with me? I know your afflictions or tribulations and your poverty yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put you, put some of you in prison to test you 
and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death. Come on, let me read that again. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Okay, there's so much going on. First of all, we get a picture of Jesus. And this comes from uh, chapter one, the vision that, Jesus, uh, that John has of the, of the risen Jesus, the cosmic Christ. And it says in this particular passage that now John is using for this church, Jesus is the first and the last, the one who died and came back to life. Now, why is that important? We already know. Smyrna was called the first of the city. They were all about being first. And in this revelation, what we see is Jesus is actually first and he's last. In other words, Jesus brackets our life. Jesus um, is the borders of our life. He encompasses our life. Paul will use the language, our life is hidden in Christ. Jesus is the first and the last. Our life is now bracketed in the life of Jesus. It's not Caesar, it's not the rise of and fall of the Roman Empire. It's not the rise and fall of the United States of America. Our lives are bounded and hidden in Jesus Christ. If he is the first and if he is the last, he has the final say on all things. Are you with me? So he's the first and the last. He was dead and he came alive. This is a direct connection to the city's popularity for it being a city that went to death to life. Jesus is those things. The next verse says in verse nine, I know your afflictions. Now the word afflictions is also where we get the word uh, tribulations. And that specific word is a Greek word for the word pressure. I know the afflictions or tribulations. I know the pressure you've experienced. Now in the first, first century Greek, that word pressure has an image connected to it. And the image connected to it is that of a stone being placed on a human to torture somebody to death. And the image of the stone pressing somebody down until they're killed. That's where we get that specific Greek word for pressure. And it's uh, used to torture someone to death. And the first century Christians would have experienced that kind of pressure. Uh, this, This unique uh, tension and crushing of Christianity. That word is not like, hey, I have pressure to take care of my kids when they're acting out. It's, the word isn't used for everyday ordinary life. It's specific to the kind of pressure that one experiences when they are living as or within the kingdom of God and that kingdom of God is confronted by the kingdom of darkness. That there is a kind of pressure that comes when you are faithful to Jesus and the outside world comes to try to crush that life that is in you. Are you with me? So Jesus knows the pressure that the church has experienced. And then it goes on and it says, I know the poverty. I know that, uh, 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 and I know your poverty, yet you are re- rich. Now what's interesting is what scholars say about Smyrna. There's no reason at all for anyone in Smyrna to have been poor. So scholars believe actually what Jesus is saying to the church is that some of the Christians are poor because of their uncompromising faith. They have not given in to the pressures to conform to the ways of city. 
to the ways of the city, to the ways of empire. In their business practice, they chose to do things differently because of the way of Jesus. And so what, what scholars believe, believe is that Romans and Jewish men and women boycotted or resisted the Christians. That who knows what could have happened. Some scholars speculate that some believe that shops were confiscated, uh, homes were ransacked because of their Christianity. They were denied employment because of their faith. And it's much like what you hear happened um, with the Armenians and the Russians uh, who were Christian during the times of Soviet Union. It's what happens today and all over the world in places that experience persecution. I know that this happens in India today where people are forced to renounce their faith um, or won't get business or will lose business because of their faith. And what Smyrna chose to do, which created all sorts of obstacles for the church, was to live in such a way that, um, that they had to uh, not participate in the, the economic and commerce of their day because it meant practicing a kind of worship of an idol. And so what you see is that the church in the first century chose to live as a radical, creative minority resisting the empire, even if it cost them financial success. And some scholars even talk about the mark of the beast, which we'll talk about in the future, as being that, that dye or that incense d- that was a different color that had to go on your hand or on your forehead in order to enter into a marketplace to buy and trade and sell your goods. And the question is, will you participate in the way of the beast, which was directly connected to the economic practices of the first century Roman Empire that were connected to worship of Caesar, or will you remain faithful to Jesus? There will, it will cost you something. Are you with me? Let's keep going. I know this is a lot of content, but I want you to see what's going on, and then we'll land on what it means for us today. I love this stuff. I love it. And if you love it, let me get some amens. Let me get some hallelujahs. Let me get some text messages, some comments. Let me know if you love the Bible study. I love preaching the word. I love that the word is shaping how we live. Let's keep going. Uh, It continues on in verse nine, and it says, um, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So that's pretty harsh. Synagogue of Satan. But what, what you need to understand in the first century is there really are, what, what John is saying is there's, there are three types of pressure um, working against the Christians in Smyrna. First was the Roman pressure to denounce Jesus and to follow the cult of Rome, to worship Caesar as Lord. But then there was the second, the Jewish pressure. The Jewish pressure um, was different than the Roman Empire. But what happened in the first century, by the first century, is the Jewish community they were uh, exempt from worshiping Caesar and serving in the military. They had worked out a religious privilege that they negotiated with the various Caesars and Roman governors to make sure that they didn't have to worship Caesar because that would be um, against their religion to worship one and only God, Yahweh, but also to not serve in the army, which was against their the Torah. So Jews were worried in the first century and anxious about Christians because in the first century, most of Rome thought Christianity was a form of Judaism, was a sect of Judaism. And so the Jews were regularly uh, against the Christians. 
And they, they, they would deny the Christians. They denied that they were the same religion. And they would regularly gossip or slander or turn them over to Rome because they were worried that the Jews, for their own interests, would, would be grouped together with the Christians. And the Christians were far more um, radical and robust in their faith in the first century because they were evangelizing everyone. And so um, what we see is this was probably going on in Smyrna. And so what Jesus does is he calls them a synagogue of Satan. Now, in the first century, the traditional name of a Jewish worship community was called the synagogue of the Lord. So here we see that there is a pressure mounting against um, the Christians in Smyrna. There's three different pressures. There's the Roman political pressure. There's the religious pressure of the Jewish community opposing them. And then it goes on and it says, um, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Okay, now we see the third opposition against the church in Smyrna. We have Rome, we have political pressure, uh, we have the Jewish community and religious pressure, and now John over and over again will kind of unveil the real thing going on behind the curtain. There are spiritual forces of darkness, Satan or the devil, evil, working against the Christians in the, uh, all throughout the Roman Empire. It's as if John is pulling back the curtain to show you what's happening in the heavenly places. He's showing you what's really going on. You think you see what's happening, but John wants you to carry a different perspective, one of revelation, one to see unveiling the things going on in the world. The equation is not pressure from the, the, uh, the pressure that they experience is the, uh, the Christians being threatened by political and religious groups. No, that's not the equation. Pressure equals threatened by political groups, hostile religious groups against the church, and spiritual forces of evil manipulating both the political and the religious groups. So to us, behind the moral darkness is the prince of darkness. The escalating violence is the viol- uh, coming from the Lord of violence, Satan and, and, and the devil. And so we can't dismiss the spiritual forces working against Christianity in the first century or Christianity in our current day and age. There is a pressure and we can, wanna, we can label it, some of us, as a liberal left or a conservative right or media or a narrative or big business or technology, but the reality is there are rulers and forces, there are cosmic, there is a cosmic evil, both personal and impersonal, working against the way of Jesus and the kingdom of God. It is not the Jews, it is not the Romans putting you in prison, it is the devil working through those kinds of institutions, through those systems, through those people to harm Christianity. Not Christians, but Christ's cause. Christians are a byproduct. You see, evil, there is evil in the world and there are personal and impersonal supra beings that exist 
that corrupt individual hearts, evil corrupts individual hearts, but it also corrupts and influences the systems that are present in the world. You need to see this word systemic evil as something that's present throughout the whole biblical narrative. Paul uses language like powers and principalities, spiritual forces of darkness, creation that groans and waits for the children of God to be revealed. There is spiritual oppression on individual levels, corporate levels, impersonal levels, impersonal beings that are at display being used. John wants you to know that things aren't just as they appear. We can't just use scientific reason, the enlightenment era of of awakening, what we see is what's real. We have to understand as Christians, there is a kingdom of darkness opposing the way of life in Jesus throughout history. And John is naming it, that it's not Romans putting you into prison because the Jews slandered your name. It is the devil himself who is working against you in your place. And he says, I tell you, don't be afraid that you are about to suffer. Jesus doesn't say, I'm gonna take the suffering away. He says, don't be afraid of the suffering you will experience. And then he says, be faithful even to the point of death. There is a real pressure that Christians experience for their real faith in the real Jesus. But unfortunately today, we have accommodated our faith to not have to worry about that kind of pressure, to not have to worry about being that kind of faithful Christian as the world opposes our way of life because we're not living a life worthy of opposition. Let me just pause there for a moment. Maybe we could just break this up, I don't know how we do this, but can we just pause wherever you are and recognize the significance of this moment, what Jesus is saying to the church through John, that there are powers working against the faithful witness of Jesus' followers in every context, that the opposition we might have for the faithfulness of witness might not just be the slander, it might not just be the political ideologies, it might not just be COVID, it could be the work of the devil, it could be the work of supernatural forces opposing the kingdom of God. And the question I have for you to think about for just a moment, and we're gonna take a pause, and then I'm gonna continue. Are you living a life worthy of opposition? Are you, Are you feeling pressure or is your life a little too comfortable? Can you just pause and why don't we do this? Why don't we talk to the people in the room? Is your life in a place right now that empowers you to live comfortable and free, unmoved by the world around you or is there increased opposition from the kingdom of darkness, from Um, the way of the world opposing your life because your life reflects the life of Jesus. Just pause and think, and then we'll continue. Now, let's keep going. The text isn't finished, and I know we're going a little longer, but um, you can either shut me off or you can just keep pressing in. So are you living a life worthy of opposition? What will you do under pressure? Jesus gives us two commands in order to deal with the pressure mounting against Christianity. This is for the church in Smyrna, and we can apply it to us when we understand the context. First, Jesus says, do not be afraid. He says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. He's not gonna take the pressure away. 
He's telling Smyrna, they are in the right place. They are being challenged by the systems of evil because they are doing exactly what they should be doing. It's as they say, it is the the, uh, live fish that swim upstream against the current. It is a dead fish that comfortably float with the current. In other words, Smyrna and the Christians in Smyrna are facing opposition because they are being true to Jesus and his ways. They're not making Jesus some type of religious experience. They're making Jesus a way of existing in the world that impacts their finances. It impacts their businesses. It impacts their parenting. It impacts their relationships. It impacts the way they speak, the way they think, the way they vote, the way they live. It's challenged because of how it's lived out in their lives. And then the second command is to be faithful. Verse 10, be faithful even to the point of death. And he says, I will give you life as your victor's crown. Be faithful even to the point of death. Oh, Okay, are you with me? Do you see what the church is being encouraged to do? Be faithful to the point of death. Come on, church. If this doesn't wake you up, I don't know what will. This is Revelation. It's literally the last book in the Bible, and it's saying times will come when the church will face pressure, and it will need to not fear that pressure, and it it must learn to remain faithful to the point of death. Brothers and sisters, I don't think I've ever experienced any type of need to be that kind of faithful follower of Jesus. And the question that I want to give you as a church is, will you remain faithful? Will you remain faithful to Jesus and his way? Or will you give in? Will you conform? You could ask, what are you afraid of? Maybe in your journal right now, write down what the fears you have. Take a few moments. They could be specific. Some of us have a a real fear of getting sick from COVID-19. Some of us have a fear of our families being sick. Some of us have a fear of the economic impact, the job loss. Will we ever get our careers back? Will our company recover? There's real fears about real things going on in the world. But, but Jesus is being specific to this church about, about not being afraid of suffering when they are arrested for their faith. (laughs) Now, our fear is present to our circumstance, but imagine needing that kind of faith, the kind of faith that when it comes to, push comes to uh, shove, push comes to shove, you remain faithful to the point of obedience to Jesus to the point of death. I'm not talking about being afraid of changing careers. I'm not talking about being afraid of moving your family across country. I'm not talking about... um, That kind of fear, I'm talking about the fear that comes from life and death situations because of faithfulness to Jesus. Come on. And Jesus promises a reward to those who remain faithful. The reward is life and a victor's crown, which was a a crown, a a type of headpiece that was given to those that competed and won in the Olympic Games, which Smyrna hosted at one point. So Jesus gives a promise to those who are faithful, and he gives a couple other promises. But he says, look, pressure's mounting, and I feel like I wanna say to our church, pressure's mounting. And it's different than Smyrna, but there is a pressure mounting, pressure of immorality, a pressure of 
accepting the way of our culture and world because our beliefs and values that are biblically grounded are seen as oppressive and archaic in our culture. Culture is pushing the biblical faith and its practices to the margins of society and the question remains, will you be faithful? I think of raising children today and the kind of environment that creates an increased pressure of intensity. Will Christian followers of Jesus parent their children in a way to live out biblical values and practices? Or will we just give up and give in and follow the state's mandates? I believe we need to learn to teach our children to uh, read scripture and live as a redemptive, courageous, missional presence, which means we have to figure out what to do with social media, with media, with the internet, with technology. Will we influence their faith in in the things of Jesus or will YouTube and TikTok become the teacher of all things? Will we live with fear as we live in this world or will we live with faith? Because faith overcomes fear and fear comes from a lack of faith. Will we learn how to live faithfully as followers of Jesus or will we give in and worship the beasts of our age? This we'll talk about in the future. Jesus then goes on to say, and I love this, you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, this is where apocalyptic literature needs some help because what we tend to do is we wanna take this literally but I find it hard to take 10 days literally, especially when it comes to apocalyptic literature because you should read it more as a poem because numbers have different meaning and significance when you're reading or writing in an apocalyptic style, excuse me. When I tell my son at night, I love you to the moon and back, it doesn't literally mean I go to the moon and back for love. It is a figure of speech, a metaphor, a description of something that poetry only gets. The scientists will never understand poetry. And if we approach Revelation like a scientist, we fail to approach Revelation the way it was intended to be. The number 10 at the time that this was written in apocalyptic language was the number for human completion. So in other words, like the t- we have 10 fingers and 10 toes. What's the point of, of this phrase, you'll be persecuted for 10 days. Well, the point is simply that Jesus is in charge. Remember, he's the first and the last. He has the final say. He has the final word on these things. These things, The political system, the religious communities, they will bring opposition because they have free will. The spiritual forces of darkness also have free will, but their free will is limited by Jesus. Their power is limited. Jesus is the end. <clears throat> we will see in the end of the book that we have, we know how the story ends. What happens in between, God creates and God restores. There is a bracket and it is Jesus, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. We know how the story ends. Jesus is going to limit this persecution. It will eventually cease and all things, all of the cosmos will be renewed under Jesus's lordship. Can I get an amen? And at the end it says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. And here it is. Now, if you obey, there will be rewards, life as a victor's crown, and you won't be hurt by the second death. Now, I want to just point out the fact that Smyrna doesn't follow 
the formula that most of the churches follow. I know these good things about you, but I have this against you. Smyrna doesn't have anything working against itself because the disciples in Smyrna were doing everything right. Unlike the disciples in Ephesus, they had not left their first love. Unlike the disciples in Laodicea, they were not lukewarm. And we'll read about the other ones. They were passionately following Jesus. They were sold out for the kingdom of God. And as a result of all the things coming in and crushing them, they were faithful under pressure. The disciples of Smyrna were experiencing affliction and tribulation because they were living godly lives. They were seeking first the kingdom of God and his his righteousness. They were a city unlike any other city and they disrupted the city as a result and Jesus offers them this reward as they remain faithful and they're not afraid. As they remain faithful, it says those who remain faithful to the end will not be hurt by the second death. And... um, they will not be hurt by a second. And this is just helpful theology. Those who are faithful won't be hurt by the second death. So according to scriptures, there are two deaths. The first one is when we die. Our physical bodies, we will all die in this life. The second one, according to Revelation, is being dismissed from the presence of God, which we'll talk about later on. will be dismissed from the presence of God. Those who do not follow Jesus, those who do not have a relationship with Jesus. God wants to save everyone, but those who are dismissed uh, at the end, the second death, those who choose to walk away from God's way of life will also choose to enter into the second death. As one once said, those who are born once die twice, but those who are born twice die once. So I want to invite you to put your faith in Jesus. Begin a relationship with him. Don't be afraid and be faithful to the point of death because um, if you are faithful to Jesus, if you accept Jesus, you will have a reward coming your way. And we don't talk about that enough, but there are rewards coming. We'll talk more in the future. So to end, I just wanna ask this question. Where are you at today? Are you living a life dedicated to the way of Jesus? Or are you living a life dedicated to yourself, dedicated to your comfort, your security, to the American way? Is your family the priority? Is your life the priority? Is your workplace the priority? Is your business a priority? Or is Jesus the priority in your life? Jesus invites you to set those things aside, to lose your life for his sake so that you will find abundant life in him. And I want all of you to experience that abundant life. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to fill us now with your presence. Let us release the distractions, the temptations, and the idols to now step in as faithful followers who will be faithful to the point of death and live as a faithful witness to the age to come. And we pray this in the name of the resurrecting King. All God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.